Hello and welcome to Mortgage Insider from Barclays, the podcast series that delves into the biggest challenges facing the mortgage broking industry. I'm Claire McPhail, a business development manager in the South East. And I'm Tony Rimmer, a business development manager from the North West. In this episode, we're looking at mortgage fraud. How widespread is fraud in the mortgage industry? What should brokers look out for? And how has the pandemic changed things? Claire, what sort of things have you been seeing? It's not something that I see all the time, but certainly I have had experience of of brokers coming to me where clients have maybe overstated income and they're not 100% sure where to go with that. And I've had a couple of instances where um, brokers have contacted me because maybe um, third parties have intercepted emails, which has had a drastic effect um, on the outcome for their clients. But it's not widespread, but, but it's certainly there. We heard from Amy Telling, who was the victim of mortgage fraudsters. She told us what happened to her. In 2016, I was transferring £60,000 to pay for my deposit on my new house. And I emailed my solicitor. Everything was done on email because I was working full time and asked for their bank account details. An email came immediately back from them from their email address, with their footer, etc., giving me the bank account details. I then forwarded that to my investment manager, who duly paid it to them. I then hadn't heard anything for a couple of hours, which I thought was quite unusual. So I called my solicitor and he had no idea of sending an email. What had happened was somebody had hacked into the solicitor's email system. So the email was from my solicitor. So there was no way I was able to to, to notice that it was from somebody else. So unfortunately, I had to take my solicitors to court as that was where the breach of security was. They were great solicitors in the property conveyancing and a very small firm. And I believe that they have since uh, gone under, which has ruined some more lives. And we managed to settle out of court. But unfortunately, I lost about £10,000. But I did manage to get the house. So that was a relief. Um, But it was incredibly traumatic you've lost your life savings. And I had some inheritance added to that as well. You're about to lose your house, where your home is going to be, where you've set up your new life. And you're destroying, and I'm very aware of that, I'm destroying somebody else's life, their livelihoods. And, but it's not, 60 grand is not something you can just pass off. Unfortunately, somebody has to pay for it. And it, just destroys your faith in humanity. So one example there of the impact of mortgage fraud. We spoke to Neil Scriven, Lending Fraud Director for Barclays. Hi Neil, thanks for joining us today. Yes, hi Neil, welcome to today's podcast. It's nice to be here. So Neil, I'll I'll kick off with the first question for you today. So we've had such a busy year um, for ourselves with all the mortgage applications that have come in. And what would be really good is to understand maybe the scale of mortgage fraud in the UK. Um, I think this is a very interesting question. First of all, I think one of 
that we don't actually understand what is mortgage fraud in, 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 a, in the bluntest terms. Um, mortgage fraud is it, it makes a number of different types of fraud. There's the fraud that most lenders see is essentially an application style fraud where customers falsify information they provide to us often around income. But at the same time, other sorts of mortgage fraud relate to a misstatement of the asset or some sort of manipulation around the asset uh, and the value of the asset. So there's a valuation style fraud. And similar to the example we've just heard, there's the instances where the email traffic between the customer and the solicitor is intercepted and this, the customer is tricked into sending the deposit funds um, to the wrong bank account. And, and if you bundle all those together into a concept of fraud, you still don't have a, if I don't if I'm honest, the industry doesn't produce figures on those on that basis. So how big is the problem of fraud? I think everybody who's ever been involved in mortgages has, has come across elements of some sort of fraud. And there's lots of reported instances, but I don't think there's a single number you can put out in, say, X amount of mortgage applications have an element of fraud about them. It makes you think how much is out there or, you know, is it a is it a bigger problem than we actually realise? Or when you think of the volume of, of mortgage applications that we get, actually, is it a lot smaller than, than you could imagine? I think it's pretty fair to say that the, the percentage of applications where customers may be less than totally honest is in the low single digit percentages. Yeah, we're not talking about 20 or 30%. But, but we're talking in that sort of range between probably less than 5%. The question is then to what degree the customer has not quite told you the full truth. So how serious is it? It may be that the customer's not included every piece of their commitments. Technically, you know, they fail to disclose a personal load or a credit card. That's technically fraud. But I don't think most lenders, because of the access to credit files and the ability to check, would take a... a common sense view about you know customers you know, and people make mistakes let's be honest and, and if we identify and challenge that that's one element the other end of the scale is where people are forging bank statements and, and pay slips and company accounts to prove a level of income that they just don't have i think we would all consider that to be a, a pretty serious attempted fraud oh that's really interesting uh, thanks neil i just wondered if we could try and draw this in a little now and look at when it comes to fraud what's changed during the last 12 months in the pandemic and what what are the latest things that people perhaps need to watch out for what's going on at the moment out there in the marketplace i think in, out in the marketplace a couple of of impacts that, that probably people are really well aware of the the government has, has taken a number of schemes and brought through a number of changes to support if you like, the market during the pandemic. One of those has been the stamp duty changes, which has created, as we're all aware, a level of volume. Now, that in itself is not a fraud issue other than the, just the, the general uh, amount of applications we're having to deal with the process. But I think one of the things that we we have noticed, however, is the other government schemes like the bounce back loan, as used being used as a source of deposit, where strictly speaking, that, that's not allowable because it's only for business industry support. So that's one area we, we've definitely seen some movement in that space. I think other areas around that have sort of cropped up, but not in a huge or significant way, is around people at the furlough scheme and how that interpretation of income around furlough scheme is, is undertaken. 
They're also, as we've moved away from as many physical valuations, so we've been more reliant on desktop valuations, but there has been a risk around if we can't visit the property, are we clear about what the customers are using the property for, particularly on remortgages? Unfortunately, people do use residential mortgages to purchase buy-to-let properties. So those are some of the areas I think that we've that have cropped up, but none of them have been major. It's been peripheral. I think the biggest thing we've noticed in the last 12 minutes is just literally the volume of applications that are coming through and people wanting to use the opportunity of the stamp duty to, to make that, that property move. There's, there's quite a bit in there, I think, Neil. I think, I think one of the things that I think initially has been a, been a significant change that I've seen is brokers having to now work virtually with their customers and clients as opposed to seeing them face-to-face. And I just wondered, in terms of knowing perhaps who you're talking to, as a broker, you know, the first line of any conversation around, you know, doing the right or wrong thing probably has always started there. And if you've been able to meet that individual, I guess that's all, that's a tick in the box, isn't it? That's been a real challenge for, for the brokers and for ourselves. Is that how do you actually know who you're talking to on a virtual um, Zoom call or, or the like? As you move to that as an, a, a process, how do you physically get the copies of the identity documents? Usually a broker would meet the customer because there's that physical contact and they would go through that process of, you know, handing over a passport or a driving license and looking at it and taking a copy. And and as you move towards a more virtual environment, how do you, how are you sure that the document that's being provided to you is a, is a genuine? Where you have those scenarios, and they are thankfully rare, you have the customer impersonated and, and a remortgage taken in their name. Those are those that in theory the risk of those has increased, and we've taken some steps to keep a close eye around those. But at the end, at the end of the day, it's going to have to be the broker where they get a nervousness about the identity document. Just maybe do some additional checks, yeah. But ultimately, if you're uncomfortable and you think even after the, the mortgage is processed and you you're not getting the communication you would expect, we would hope that you would let us know. And, and we can then carry out additional checks ourselves. If a broker was to identify someone, you know, for example, even putting in wrong addresses and things like that, what what would they need to look at doing? I think the first thing to do is just contact us. You would also usually want to reach out to your whoever manages your compliance and audit within your firm to let them know. But but if you just let us know, if we've got a pending application, we we can have a look at it. Yeah. We can take it and, and take a view. And if we do identify that, that there is significant wrongdoing and the customer's not been telling the truth, then, then we are obviously, we're unlikely to want to lend to them. And we can also then protect other blenders by sharing that information with fraud prevention agencies to say that this particular customer, not so much don't, don't lend to them, but if they approach you, you need to be aware of, of our concerns around this particular customer. Yeah, and, and that what they've they've stated to us on our application, yeah, we were unable to to validate to our satisfaction or 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 that we or that we proved that we would prove that they're deliberately misrepresented. I think like I say, that there is this there's a bit of grey area in there, particularly around income, where it's a question of can you satisfy yourself that the customer's telling you the truth. I think where you've got issues of false documentation, forgery, where you can prove it as a, a definitive, uh, it's slightly different. And we would, it was unlikely, I'll be honest, it'd be unlikely where you've proved that somebody's 
um, forge documentation to try and get a mortgage that they will succeed in getting a mortgage on any lender. Thinking more about the smaller one-man bands who, who may work on their own, what advice would you be giving to them, to the smaller self-employed brokers? Yeah, I, I think a couple of points. From, from my perspective, from what I've seen, it's all about knowing your customer. If you understand and know your customer and you know the customer's personal circumstances, then you then usually it's unlikely they will deceive you because they are deceiving you as well as us. Yeah. A couple of things to be wary of is if you have an introducer who's introducing you business or you're receiving lots of business from an introducer, the old adage around fraud is if it's too good to be true, it often is. Yeah. And and why is this introducer giving me lots of good business? Why isn't it going elsewhere? Why hardly know him? I, I have some relationship with the introducer. Often when we've come across one-man bands who have been sucked into fraud, there's usually an introducer that they've, they've suddenly got an easy stream of business from. And I think for those cases, you should be particularly wary because it starts off with some good cases. But what naturally happens is the good cases become a bit more marginal. And then the good cases, suddenly there, there, there is an, an extra ask. And then there's, there's a question, oh, well, you really need to meet this person. or do you, And the, the introducer starts to control the transactions. Obviously, all brokers as regulated individuals will have a duty under the money laundering regulations. Yeah, and, and, and I would advise you to be on top of those. And if you think it's necessary to report the case, then, then report it under those auspices. But it, it's, a, it's a generally general point is that you should be be looking for the unusual, I think is the thing that stands out. The thing that, that doesn't quite feel right, because usually if you deal with a lot of mortgage customers, you will pick out that small percentage of cases where something's not quite right. Thanks, Neil. And linking into that, we heard previously from Amy and she was talking about her experience, which was a lot more to do with solicitors and the conveyancing. I know that in sort of the experience that I've had over the last 20 years, I've had a few times where information's got into the wrong hands um, and money's ended up in in the incorrect account. And of course, that's caused a lot of worry. Have you come across this a lot? Do we see this a lot? Yeah, it's possibly the most distressing type of uh, fraud that we see. Although we're not impacted by it directly, it has the most horrendous impact on the customers. It's unfortunately... Um, it's true that, that fraudsters target email addresses and email servers to try and pull out personal information. And they particularly target solicitors because solicitors very often deal with lots of personal information. It's a horrible thing to happen. And whenever we come across those, we try and support the customer as much as possible. Um, but often it, it gets to the point where the only way for the customer to get the money back is to, to undergate quite expensive and extensive litigation against the solicitors and co- raise complaints against them. I think from, from our point of view, I would, and to the, the brokers, I would say wherever a customer, if you ever hear a customer talking about the solicitors changing client's account or amending anything like that on a purchase, you should be raising talk to them very seriously about and reassurance around the details of what change you've been asked for. And I would go so far as to say, because the nature of fraudsters and the ability of fraudsters to, to, to suck the customer in and to convince them as to they're, they're legitimate, I would suggest that in those sort of circumstances, it may be wise for you to pick up the phone, ring the solicitors involved and check with them. Have they changed their client's account? Yeah, and to just double check. 
and we get quite a lot of pushback, Neil, on why we don't email more offers across to solicitors and um, and certainly certificate of titles. Why can't they be, you know, there are things that I know that I get challenged on on a daily basis of why don't we do that? And I think, why don't we? But of course, that's exactly why we don't, isn't it? Of course, all of that information, certificate of titles being emailed maybe from sources that aren't secure would be a, a real one to watch out for, wouldn't they? Yeah, and, and, and fortunately we haven't been hit, but I'm aware of a, a, a lender who who received an email with a false certificate of title and they paid out a significant million-plus mortgage to the wrong account. They got it back, yeah. but you can imagine they had a few sleepless nights, I think, the people within their uh, finance department before they managed to, to claw the money back. So, uh, you know, it, it, it's not like we're, lenders are immune from this problem and we have our controls, but one of the reasons why I think all lenders are, are nervous about email, emailing our customer with hot links, texting people with hot lists, the amount of fraud that is committed using the emails and SMS texts is ever-growing. I received a text last night from something that claimed to be Hermes saying that um, I had missed a parcel and could I provide their card details and my name and date of birth so they could um, deliver it. And, I, and it was it was a fraud. But it looked absolutely – even had a web link to their Hermes uh, web app, it was a very good fraud. Yeah, and, and I think we are all bombarded with these nowadays and it's getting to the point where – people are not responding to genuine emails because they're so fearful. On that basis, Neil, is there anything that, that we can do and lenders can do to, to, to support that then moving forward? You know, if that, if that is becoming more sophisticated and the criminal element, if you like, are getting you know, a, lot, a lot slicker, what, what can we do or what can brokers do? I think one of the problems is that brokers also deal in personal information and they should be aware of their own information security. Yeah, when they're sending out customers, they should be sending out. They shouldn't be attaching links to them, because they will find that if they attach links to them, then the, then the fraudsters will get copies of those and and copy their emails with the links, but but and replace the links. So they need to think about their own information security, their own email servers, how secure are they? Yeah, and also how do, do they do they set the boundaries to their customers about when and where they will deal with them? Uh, and how they will deal with them. And I think those are the important things that people have to get used to. And we try to do as a bank, try to be clear to customers that we won't send them um, anonymous texts asking them to click on links. We won't ask for their passwords. We won't ask for their PIN numbers. Over. And, and, and how we communicate is very controlled, and we spend a lot of time thinking about how we communicate with our customers yeah? and to remove as many of those points where we ask for personal information from the customer. So, so because we recognize that that's in, inherently risky in terms of fraud and for people to piggyback on the back of our uh, our communications in that way. Yeah, it's really good advice. Thank you. Thanks, Neil. That was really helpful. That was Neil Scriven, Lending Fraud Director for Barclays. The views expressed by external guests in this podcast are their opinions only and do not reflect the views of Barclays. If there's a subject that you'd like us to explore, then please email us at mortgageinsider at acast.com. And please do subscribe so you don't miss an episode. I'm Tony Rimmer. And I'm Claire McPhail. Thanks for listening.